Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 206 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, it's July 12th, it's 2021. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am not in Austin. Where are? Where in the world, to, to borrow something you know about, where in the <laughs> world is Steve Vladek? Hello from Richmond, Massachusetts. I put that on the map for us. I'll, I will admit to not knowing precisely where something in the Berkshire. What? Is. How is that possible? Yes, Berkshire County. So um, if you are not Massachusetts geography experts, the westernmost county in Massachusetts, which runs all the way from the Vermont state line to the Connecticut state line, is Berkshire County. Um, and Richmond is, I don't know, I would say about a third, two thirds of the way down from Vermont to Connecticut on the western side. So actually Richmond borders up against New York State. So is this a community that is full of people like yourselves who sort of decamp for the summer? Or is it like all the townies are staring daggers at you as you walk down the street, you know, doing things that somehow don't match whatever normally goes on? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, I think so. So Richmond, Richmond is not quite as much of a, of a sort of, um, uh, uh, how do I say, vacation hometown. Um, we're sort of on the southeast edge of Richmond, but you know we're one town over from Lenox, which really is very vacation yeah, and tourist driven. Um, and actually, Tanglewood is between us, so that's really cool. Oh, that's um, cool. That's real cool. So, so I think you know, I, I'll put it this way: I have seen other Texas license plates. <laughs> I was um, asking about the license plate, whether that's yes. you know draws a. I assume um, nothing I, but compliments and, and uh, oh yes, they love the Texans. They, they love they the should. Texans here in Western Massachusetts. So. Awesome. Um, but yes, we are, as, as I think I mentioned in the last episode, we are here for five weeks to get a little bit away from, um, Austin. Although I have to say, I mean, the, the temperature here is delightful at 65 right now, but it has been wet. Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's, it's, while you've been gone, as I'm sure you're following, I mean, it just keeps raining today was like our longest sustained dry streak. This, the heat ridges on the, on the two coasts are causing all kinds of weird effects internally. It's the coolest summer we've had in my memory. Um, I'm appreciative of that, but that's don't tell of, me that we, we, we um, left, we left to get away from the heat. And, and so here's the part that's good for you. And yet <laughs> high, high humidity is, is plenty to make you glad that you're there. So it's back to, it's getting back to normal. I mean, my, I, you know, this is probably too much information, but my favorite, my favorite weather is sweatshirt and shorts weather. And we've had a lot of that here in, in the Berkshires. I bet you liked it when you were in San Francisco. I bet that was like a good. Very much so. Although, 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 although Judge Burzon did not let me wear shorts to work. So <laughs> I would hope not. Standards, man. <laughs> um, I did. I did eventually wear her down on sweatshirts. It's not, not because she approved of them, but because she just got tired of fighting with me about it. <laughs> So when, when when we were not when we were not sitting, my standard work outfit was a sweatshirt, um, a button da- a sweatshirt over a button down, and and jeans. Okay, you, you had the collar. Okay, well I will admit, despite being supposedly Mister Traditions and Standards, that's um, you. When I was uh, clerking for Judge Kaplan on the Southern District of New York, so this is the nineties. Uh, no AC on the subway platform, and it was a long, long, hot, sweaty way in those summers. So I would, uh, I guess, I would have like like a white t-shirt, a suit pants and all the rest. And I'd bring my, my dress shirt and jacket and tie, but have them mm-hmm. separately get to the courthouse and then mm-hmm. like duck into a restroom and like just try to cool off for a while, which basically you can't. Right. Right. And, uh, and then finally give up and put on the, put on the shirt and just kind of try to hold it away from your body long <laughs> enough to be acceptable. Stand in front of the air conditioning. Yeah. I don't think Judge Kappa was impressed with my, uh, my style choices. Yeah. Um, anyway, how are you? I'm good. I, you can almost, you can almost, can't you just hear the listeners being like, guys, 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 national security <laughs> law. There's there's stuff that's happening. You should talk about it. 
Is um, there? there? I mean, we actually we decided to actually you know get together and record an episode. So yeah, that's that's something. Okay, so what was the forcing function? Was it was it the increasingly rapid and increasingly awkward withdrawal from Afghanistan? Is it uh, is it Al Hila and the mystery brief? I, I think it's I think it's a readout. From? I think it is all the Gitmo news. I mean, I you know, I for, forgive me for going out on a limb here, but I think Mark Martin's oh, um, yeah. stepping away from the military commissions is like, I would say, maybe not category five, but like a category four national security law podcast um, event. I agree. It's almost it if it were couched in more things to to play with other than just retrospective and symbolism, it would have been uh, emergency podcast worthy because of the just extraordinary, extraordinary commitment in, in the symbolism of even this, this sort of granite rock of right. support finally saying, all right, I, this, this, this seems to not be ending. Right. I mean, I mean, we used to, we used to joke that like, you know, he was, he, General Martin's going to be in it for the, till the end. And, you know, so his departure, I, I know it's easy for folks who, you know, only get their Guantanamo military commission news from us, which by the way, sorry. Um, to think that oh well the judges turn over every four days so why should we surprise why should we be surprised that the chief prosecutor something that was like no this is actually yeah, quite Mark, a thing Mark's so steadfast I'm a, I'm a huge uh, fan of Mark as as I hope he knows having uh, worked for him in, in some in 2009 he um, he and I have a slightly more um, adversarial relationship but that doesn't mean that we respect each other any less no I think it's clear from your comments over time about him that you actually have a lot of respect for Mark and I, I'm sure he appreciates that. Well, we'll get to all that. Um, there's probably other stuff. <laughs> Donald Trump's like suing everybody. So we'll kind of have a, a little, little mini return to Trumplandia. Uh, do, do, does, does the First Amendment apply to this podcast? Ooh. That Ooh. Could be okay, write that down. I'm not going to remember that by the end of this. Um, <laughs> but we will touch base with that, though um, we'll probably focus more on the sort of the core classic topics. And uh, for frivolity, well, it is the all-star break, right? That's what I hear, and the yeah. Mets are the Mets are somehow yeah, still in first place. Unbelievable! They tried really hard yesterday. I mean, if they could have lost multiple times yesterday, I think they would have. We will. So we'll talk some baseball just to you know, just because we have to with our theme. Uh, you know that that sort of talk may continue until Picard season two drops, mm. or until you start watching Marvel shows and movies. It kills me that we can't talk about Loki. I don't know what to tell you, buddy. I I mean, um. you've got. I, I guess I can't say you've got any bandwidth. You have no bandwidth, and yet, true. Are. All right. Well, wait. There's some 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 show like there's some show that's coming back in like a week or two. I'm trying to remember what it is. I don't remember what it is, but there's some. I forgot. I, I forgot to calendar it, which is not a good sign. All right. Well, I I recently completed Shit's Creek. Finally. Oh. Um, that's so funny. That's just genius. But I digress. We should start talking about substance. So I guess we should put our listeners out of their long misery, the uh, seven minutes and 22 seconds. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's start with Mark Martins. Cause that actually, he, he deserves uh, top billing. So Mark came in at a time when the Obama administration was recommitting the U S government to the military commission approach, a mend it, don't end it approach. May, 2009. If you're scoring at home. And it, and it and we've shared this story before. Longtime listeners will remember that at some point, probably multiple times, because I don't keep track, um, I shared the story of uh, how I was going to go in to the detention policy task force, which Mark was running as a, as basically the sort of like the one non agency person and just sort of a I don't know 
scribe or something, whatever it was they thought I could be useful for. We had to teach my last day of national security law, no doubt using your casebook. And the last day was supposed to be on military commissions. And I basically, you know, this is like right after Obama's inaugurated. And I told the class, I was like, okay, this is basically, this topic's over. They're going to get rid of commissions. So I'm not going to test you on it. Let's talk about other stuff. Let's, let's, you know, review from earlier in the semester. Then I caught a plane that afternoon. Next day, first meeting I walk into, um, <laughs> there's Marty Lederman, those people. And the topic is, you know, the Draft Military Commissions Act of 2009. I was like, wait, what? Really? We're doing this? And there was a really strong commitment, um, not just coming out of DOD and Mark and others, um, but supported by the White House and very much support Carl Levin. Senator Levin, I think, was, you know, a big force in this coming out of the Senate. And it very much was this idea of like, look, there was a version of this that could have been done right procedurally from the beginning, and this can work, and that having non-court martial law of war adjudicatory tools is an important tool in the arsenal. And there's actually sort of a, at least this is my two cents, I don't know if anyone else would own this, but I perceive that people felt, the institutionalists felt that it was important to try to restore, even if they, even if it were people that wouldn't have used commissions to begin with, I felt there were a lot of people who really wanted to sort of undo the damage of the the ex parte Kieran style commissions that had been charted out originally and the halting measures to improve them by trying to show that, look, here, here's the normal way to do it so that later on this could still be useful. It, some combination, some coalition of that with people who just felt the law of war model was the right way to go and people who liked the policy all along come together to give us the commissions. And then the administration needs to find somebody who can kind of be the, uh, so-called A-team to go down there and to do it right from the prosecutorial side and to, to really professionalize it. And, um, you know, much to his credit, Mark accepted that tasking. Uh, and, and I think probably, you know, wouldn't have had that many more years in service, but in the end, because of the bleak house nature of what goes on at the commissions, it was a decade. And then the other day out of the blue, no doubt, not out of the blue for him and others, but for us, um, well, he, I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about the not. I don't know about the not. I mean, you know, he had gotten permission to stay in rank, right, and to keep serving as chief prosecutor until January first of twenty twenty three, right. So that had been a sign that he was going to try. I, I think that he was going to try to stay on at least through the end of the trial of the nine eleven defense. Well, that's just yeah. I, I mean, I think we all thought like he is in this to push that trial over the finish line, and and be you know be the prosecutor of the nine eleven trial, and. And so that's not happening. You know, there was reporting. I think it was Charlie Savage and Carol Rosenberg together co-authoring about this and reporting at least what they'd been told were the internal tensions. What is, can you give your sense of the candidate theories as to what explains this? So, I mean, I'm just, just reading from, from the story, right, that um, a key point of contention was a recent decision by General Martins to use a statement that a man accused of orchestrating the USS Cole bombing in 2000 had made to the CIA while being tortured to make a point with the military judge presiding in that case, um, right? So there's an appeal pending. Um, yeah. We talked about that previously on the show. Right, so this is in Nashiri, and you know the government's effort to use um, statements Nashiri made while he was allegedly being tortured by the CIA, um, not to inculpate him at trial, but as part of the pretrial proceedings. Right, right, um, so not, not for, yeah, right. And, and 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 the smoking gun here to me, Bobby, is that the day that General Martins announced his departure, on the same day, 
he filed a brief in the Court of Military Commission review, or he filed a motion seeking an extension of the time within which to file the government's brief of, of Nashiri's appeal of that ruling. Are you which, anticipating it'll be a little different than it otherwise would have been then? So it seems. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it seems. And so, you know, I don't know if this was like the last straw in a long running series of confrontations, or like there was just a come to Jesus moment and, you know, someone made an ultimatum that he refused to abide by. Yeah. But um, this is, you know, for for the only sort of stability in the Guantanamo military commissions, right, has been Mark Martins, for better or for worse. And I guess it's just, you know, it is to me a sign of a lot of different things about the commissions. I think you can read it any number of ways. Um, but I think it's, you know, the most important to me is just to sort of look back and say, you know, having been in the post for over a decade, right? What exactly did he accomplish? Well, I think, I think several things about this. So one, I think he embodied and, and spent his decade delivering on dramatic improvements in the professionalization. You know, if this, if this was to work, if it's a tool that could work, he was embodying the effort to do it right as he was sort of tasked with originally. Um, certainly unintentionally, his, his decade of effort and the ultimate inability to, to realize the trial within that, which is certainly, I'm not saying this is Mark's fault. Quite the opposite, really. I'm saying that if anyone could do it, Mark could do it. And the fact that we're still, who knows when that trial is going to come off. It, we've, we've, that's a long running gag on the show at this point. Yes. And, and so the, the inability of that guy to push this over the finish line, I think right. in some ways it, it's it, like the biggest if, contribution right. of all. If, if Mark Martins couldn't do it. Yeah. Right. There was no doing it. No one can, right. It cannot be done. I think that's right. Right. I mean, right. I mean, you know, love him, hate him, respect him, whatever. Right. Like, you know, no one can doubt his drive and his dictativeness and his passion for the enterprise. And so, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I am, I am already inclined to chalk up almost everything that goes wrong in the military commissions as further proof of just how catastrophic a failure they have been. But, you know, to me, this just add that to the list. Yeah, it's just the structural, the structural problems, both the ones that were going to be there no matter what, and the ones that yep. didn't have to be there, but were there because of how we proceeded. Yep. Here we are. Well, and, and, oh, and if I may, and and, and yeah. if in fact, if the if the New York Times, if Carol's reporting is true as to the particular provocation, as to the the sort of the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, I, I mean, frankly, to me, that's that reinforces the problem, right? Which is here we are, and and we're going to talk about this in a second when we segue to Al Hila, right? But here we are in 2021, and we're still fighting over fairly fundamental questions um, about you know things that happened in 2003. Yeah, we say the wheels of justice grind slowly in the legal system. They do, <laughs> but but sometimes imperceptible movement is not imperceptible movement. It's, it's just not, not movement. movement. It's stagnation, right? Yeah. Right. So sometimes things don't look like they're moving because they're uh, not moving. moving. Yeah. <laughs> Although, is... but um, I don't know if you know this. Also, tomorrow is actually the first hearing in a Guantanamo military commission um, in over five hundred days. So um, it is. Certainly possible that I, I think our, our estimates on the timeline were pretty generous. Oh yeah, uh, but yeah, sooner or later, it's it's not that they you know despite our jokes just a second ago, it's not that they can never actually eventually get this thing to trial, but it's just going to be bizarre when half the people participating weren't alive when the underlying events occurred. 
Well, plus, I mean, there's a new story about how one of the 9-11 defendants is refusing to eat. And so we're going to go back to the force feeding conversation. But also, I mean, I just like to me, the problem is not like you and I joke all the time about the trial date. And that is an ever moving target. Mm-hmm. My larger concern, like brass tacks, is not the trial. It's the appeal. Um, and it's the fact that well, the like trial is the first word on so many of these issues. And 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 given how the military commissions have given how trial court military commission rulings have not held up thus far when subjected Bobby even to non de novo review right. in the DC circuit, right? And given at least my not necessarily yours, but at least my concerns with some of the trial level rulings that are already baked into some of these cases, including the one that's currently being challenged in the Shiri, you know. It, my my fear, right, is not just that it's going to be 2024, 2025 before these trials happen. It's that sometime in 2029, the D.C. Circuit's going to throw them all out and say, what the hell were you people thinking? Oh, my goodness. You're telling me that basically for the rest of our careers, we're still going to be with the seven-layer dip. Hey, in 2029, I'll be turning 50, okay? I, well, I sure hope that that's not the end of my career. That sounds pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> you I'm, tell me. I, Hey, I'm on the other side. I can tell you now, it's the view's great over here. I'm liking it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, By the way, do, you, do yeah. you know how you can tell sometimes what the Google, what what people are searching for for you on Google? If, if you type in your name and I mean, see like what, you dro- what the drop down like, is, a popular topic is is you know is he nuts? <laughs> so 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 you know, way down the list of me is how old is he? Oh my God. Okay, friends, we're going to play a little game here because I'm going to see what Google autocomplete me. Um, Steve, I'm this, here's what I'm typing in. Steve Vladek is. Bobby Chesney is, is what I'm testing. You, know, you do that, I'll, I'll tell you. Of course, it might be tailored. I'll, I'll delete my, my, my previous searches for you. All right. So this one, I typed in Steve Vladek is. It gave me one autocomplete Israel. Uh-huh. Steve Vladek is Israel. Congratulations. Mm. You are uh, Israel. L'chaim. L'chaim. Okay. So, so when I when I type in Bobby Chesney, here my here are the related the related searches for Bobby Chesney are Steve Vladek, <laughs> Bobby <laughs> Bobby Chesney Cyber, and Jack Goldsmith. That sounds about right. It's a good network analysis by the algorithm. <laughs> well done, Google. Yeah, fair, fair. Okay. Um, anyway, so so all this to say, um, I have certainly had my run-ins with General Martins, but you know, I would just say that like that is an impressive amount of service from a very dedicated public servant, and the fact that I don't agree with a lot of his decisions doesn't diminish in any way the importance of the job he's done for the last decade plus. Here, here, raise oh, wait, raise my water. I'll raise my beer. Ah, there you go. Um, uh, okay, so right. you know, you mentioned speaking of Guantanamo. Yeah, speaking of Guantanamo, <laughs> and you know, you mentioned the possibility of you know a hunger strike. And that is a nice entry point to the array of issues beyond trial process that are associated or habeas process, both of those procedural wickets or buckets um, that are associated with the question of does the due process clause apply to these persons at Guantanamo? And uh, well, we haven't seen, we haven't seen the brief that has been filed on a sealed basis, but we've read Charlie Savage's reporting where it seems like everyone and their dog it's like there was an interagency final meeting and they all ran out like a 1940s you know, train station set up where there's like payphones and they, each agency lawyer ran to the payphone to drop a dime in and tell Charlie, right. like, well, here's our position and here's our position. So Charlie's like, oh, hold on, I got call waiting. I love it. He's like, hold on, I got CIA on line one. 
Hello. Building <laughs> for Merrick Garland. Yes. Um, okay, quick question. Har- Har- Harold Coe, hello. So with with uh, Attorney General Garland uh, is recused from this yes. proceeding. Um, yes. By dint of being formerly Judge Garland. Right. Had he had a, a piece of the Alhila proceeding, or is he making a broad, I can't touch Gitmo litigation? I think that, I mean, that surprises I, me is it seeming it seems to me maybe overbroad recusal basis if it's just general involvement in prior cases. I'm not sure it's so so first I suspect it is general because Al Gila, to my knowledge, had not previously been to the DC circuit. Right. And he obviously wasn't on the panel that decided this now on the, bond proceeding. Uh, maybe <laughs> no, maybe he, while it no, was, no, he was not. <laughs> uh, it is it is possible, right? It is possible that he considered the gosh when was the vote when was the on banc vote yeah maybe he was still in when the on banc went down or at least when the briefs were circulating that is a good question dear twitter when did the dc circuit um i like that theory that he was he he was at least tangentially involved now do i no he's not he's not listed on the on banc order okay might he have seen the briefing though before the order, the, before the voting occurred. Yes, that is possible. Yeah. If that's what it is, I think that's too thin a read to justify the recusal. Um, Although but, you seem to have problems if it's broader too. Well, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't think he should be recused at all. It's just, so, it's so I need to say, uh, uh, and I, uh, I don't blame uh, him one bit. I think if I were uh, in his I might look for stay out of all this too. According to Charlie, um, where at least, and at least on this point, it makes total sense. Um, Elizabeth Preligar, who is the acting solicitor general, I think I've said pre Preligar, pre Preligar. Anyway, I know the pre, the pre part. Um, I got to get that right. Um, so apparently, the acting SG is the is the the head of the Tiger team on this one. Right. Um, and the final decision, as relayed by Charlie, is that the brief does not take a position. <laughs> Imagine that. But you know, that's as as a uh, Many people like to say the federal government is a they, not an it. True. And, and the many components that constitute the they in this set, this situation, as Charlie's excellent article nicely lays out. Surprise, surprise, interagency disagreement. This is this is not surprising to anybody who's had a piece of the interagency over the years on this topic, perhaps. Um, so you get the impression that we'll see if I can do it right, but certainly state and I think DOD lawyers according to the report, we're arguing for embracing the proposition that the due process clause, first, first level question, does it apply? Yes, it applies. Setting, right. no, no, mean, no one, no one was arguing that Alhila should win. Right. Right. That doesn't mean he wins. It doesn't mean the process given what right. the process do. That's a totally right. different matter. So they were, for, they were for saying that the clause applied. Um, I believe the description of CIA if it was described as CIA, maybe it was described as Intel. But anyways, the description was something a bit hedged, like, well, it's okay to say it applies in this context, but maybe it's still worth, you should reserve decision on other contexts like, you know, uh, force feeding, for example. As or, or, or whether it applied to CIA detentions in Poland, hypothetically. Right, exactly. So so they were sort of saying like, well, how about, how about we just dip our toes in the water? How, how about we get the camel's nose can go a little bit under the tent? And then, uh, then the career, uh, I assume civil division litigators, uh, but maybe national security division, who knows? Um, there's a general description of career DOJ officials um, wanting not to voluntarily give up the position that had been the litigating position all this time. So, um, although, the- although I will just say that my sense is that there were at least some people in DOJ 
who felt fairly strongly that DOJ should be arguing that yes, the due process clause applies. And clearly, it's it's easy. In fact, it'd be a little shocking if you didn't have this divide, especially with maybe some newer arrivals in the building um, feeling like no, no, we should we should go in the same way these other official, these other new arrivals at other agencies show. It reminds you a little bit of the whole March thirteenth, two thousand nine situation, where right. So, but right, you don't have you don't have all your people fully throughout the organization yet when the court docket forces your hand on a major legal policy. But 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 so so I'm glad you brought up the March thirteenth brief, right? So, um, dear dear listeners, in case you have not kept your bingo cards close at hand, the March thirteenth brief is one of the most important briefs that DOJ filed in the post Boumediene. Guantanamo habeas litigation because it was in that brief that DOJ articulated its theory of exactly what detention authority the AUMF prior to the National Defense Authorization Act actually provided. Um, So this actually is exactly what I wanted to do. Embellish that a bit by saying lots of people were assuming and many more were hoping that it was going to be basically be a very sharp narrowing, significantly different in scope from the Bush administration position there were some differences. I would not describe them as significant. It was uh, narrower. I mean, it was narrower in some important respects. But it, that's it acknowledged I mean, the laws of war. Yes, as a among other, but, among did other not, but did not argue that it actually meant anything practical in that case. Well, then, then we go back to the fact that I've been having substantial added as an adjective to material support hook. Yeah. So, but but this gets to what I wanted to say, which is. In the abstract, the reaction that this is just the government being the government, like, makes sense. Um, to anyone who is familiar, as you and I are, with the history of the government's positions vis-a-vis the Guantanamo litigation during the Obama administration, holy cow, is this a depressing example of history repeating itself, right? Like, you know, the the whole, the, to me, the animating premise of the D.C. Circuit going on bonk in Al-Hila, as opposed to doing what it did in Al-Bahani, which was just the weird on bonk dictaizing of the offensive parts of the panel opinion. The fact that they actually are going on bonk and ask the parties to brief due process says to me that, that, that there is now a majority of DC Circuit judges who think that one way or the other, it would behoove the entire DC Circuit and the entire Gitmo litigation regime to answer the question one way or the other. And the Biden administration is like, well, you don't actually have to do it. So thanks, but no thanks. And I just think that like that might have been defensible in 2009. I have a much harder time accepting that as a defensible response in 2021. Do you think, acknowledging that, but setting that to the side, do you think that the... (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) You're taking a position on that. But do you think it it matters ultimately to what the event... Eventually there's going to be... Right. Well, multiple opinions. Yes. My, my sense is, and I assume you feel the same way, ultimately it's going to say what it's going to say and unlikely that the resolution that we just described to the interagency right. fight is going to have much impact on what the opinion ultimately says. So I disagree with that, right? Because I think that a, DO, a, a DOJ brief that got behind due process would have empowered and emboldened at least some of the judges on the DC circuit who might otherwise be wary about stepping off that particular cliff alone, right? That it is a lot easier for judges who are trying to be very careful about intruding into executive prerogative yeah, during wartime, fair. right? To, 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 to hold the due process applies when that's not inconsistent with the executive's position. Now well, you could say right. it's not inconsistent here because they're saying it doesn't matter, but can I, can I just make one more point before I yeah. shut up? Um, 
I think, and I suspect you agree, that whether or not the due process clause applies isn't going to change that much in the habeas cases. I, I think I, I think it, no, I think it'll probably change. Sure. Like I think it changes a little more than I think you think it would, but but probably. sort of probably not outcome determinative in all, but maybe the most marginal case. And so that would be an argument for sort of what DOJ is doing. The problem is the military commissions, right? The the place where the due process issue has enormous purchase is the military commissions because that's where I think there are so many stronger arguments. I mean, Bobby, to me, that's where there are much stronger arguments about what due process at a minimum would require, right? As opposed to this sort of new make it up as you go body of habeas jurisprudence. And in that respect, here we go again with the DC circuit refusing to actually clarify what the law is. Just to go back to our last conversation, while we're in pretrial proceedings that I think are deeply vulnerable to constitutional objections on de novo review on post-judgment, you know, on, on appeals after convictions. I think that's right. That relatively speaking, I, I, as you said, I very much believe that no matter what answer, what position they took on due process clause applicability, the process provided as developed over time in the habeas proceedings is going to satisfy it in the courts. Certainly, I think both the DC circuit and certainly the Supreme Court would have majorities accepting that. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that the question is much more open on some aspects of the, the process, especially in the capital cases, the military commission capital right. cases above all. Right. Um, I which, are think, two, which, are, which are two of the three cases where we're past the preferral of charges. Right. And then you've got a third category, conditions of confinement, and in, to include the aforementioned force feeding issue. Yeah. And there, um, you know, the Military Commissions Act, I guess, uh, you know, there's jurisdictional limitations on what can be contested in the habeas proceeding. But if you throw in the due process argument, then it starts getting very interesting. So, yeah, and I think that obviously we're going to find out because the en banc is ultimately going to decide this. Now, whether they can reach a clear ruling on it, who knows? But I suspect they're going to say, my prediction is they're going to say in this case, Nahila, that it does apply. And they're not going to say squat about, as a majority, they're not going to say squat about context other than the one right before them. Um, and I don't think in the end it helps Alhila at all. So, so I think the last part's probably true. Although I do think Alhila has some decent arguments about why it matters. Um, I, I just like, I mean, I don't think I think there's a rather strong connection with my fatalism about the military commissions and the refusal of the DC Circuit over and over again to establish any rules. Um, right. I mean, the and this goes back to the to my mind, deeply flawed 2016 decision in uh, Al-Nashiri 2, I guess it was 2015, 2015 in Al-Nashiri 2, um, where the court where, where the district says we're not going to entertain jurisdictional challenges to the military commissions until after the trial. Yeah. yeah. Right. I just ever since then, like I just think that and then the en banc decision in Al Balul 27, whatever, whichever one it was, where they, you know, couldn't reach a majority decision about whether even on a post-conviction appeal about whether non-international war crimes were constitutionally within the military jurisdiction. Like, like, you know, it is not instability, right? And in and uncertainty are not helpful. For the, whether you think the military commissions are good or bad, whether you think they are a useful instrument of counterterrorism policy or not, like the more you leave this stuff, I was about to say something worse than stuff, um, unresolved, the harder you're making it for everybody. Yeah, I and you and I agree that's an, a neutral principle, and we agree with that. The uh, 
the case study that is this overarching experience, there'll be, there have been and will be endless things written about it. Many of them not actually that helpful in sort of the, the broader sort of abstract, what does this teach us about law and legal institutions? Um, but it would be really great to see a very thoughtful account wrestling with why the process can't grind out answers. Because most of these judges and justices understand what you just said in the inherent appeal of it perfectly well. And something about, but, but, all, but all it takes, but, but, but when, but when most of the judges are split, Bobby, right. right? That's, that's what I'm getting at. So all it takes is a couple in the middle, right? So the variable, it's kind of interesting to map out the variables and then start thinking about where else might you see similar divides. Um, when the, when the stakes are perceived to be practically really high yeah. and where they're perceived to be politically sensitive and there's global attention. And now you throw in, all sorts of fundamental disagreements about various things. Um, and you find the wheels of justice to come back to that theme, just kind of stop really grinding in the way they should. Um, the show is grinding in the way it should. Right, so, 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 really, so I want to say, I want to say one more thing about DOJ, not get more related, but while we're on DOJ. Um, so there was a fascinating OLC opinion that came down on Thursday. I don't know if you saw this. Um, uh, I saw a brief reference to, I, I gather the, the Biden OLC, or I should the Garland OLC, uh, well, you know, both a, a relatively I mean, I mean, the, the way this memo is going, an executive power uh, sort of perspective on was it removals? Uh, yeah, so it's about the president's power to remove the administrator of the Social Security Administration. Um, so Congress has created a four cause removal restriction on the the administrator of the SSA. Um, so OLC wrote a memo published on Thursday that concludes that in light of the Supreme Court's decisions last year in the Sala Law case, and this year in Collins versus Yellen, um, that that provision is now unconstitutional and therefore unenforceable, and that the president therefore has the power to fire the Social Security Administrator at will. Um, I will just say that I think that the analysis in the OLC opinion is absolutely right insofar as it is faithful to Sala Law and Collins. Um, and that's exactly why Sala Law and Collins are to me incredibly wrongheaded and <laughs> dumb and indefensible and crap. Well, I, I can't say I'm too surprised by this because certainly when I last was in the classroom teaching Sala Law, we definitely drew attention to the implications here. Yes, and yes. This didn't surprise me in slightest. But 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 it does raise it. it just I, I flag it because it raises a really interesting question to me, Bobby, which is you know the the memo is signed by our mutual friend Don Johnson, who is currently acting as the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Office of Legal Counsel. Um, we can we can guess, I suspect, fairly intelligently as to who else was involved in the drafting of said memo. Um, and I would not include any of these people among the list of those likely to defend the unitary executive theory of presidential power. And so it raises to me this this non-novel but always interesting question, right? Of whether, like, if you are a president, if 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 you as president, right, disagree with a theory of executive power that has been embraced by a majority of the Supreme Court, right? Is it more appropriate for you to, you know, act in a way that reflects your interpretation of the executive power or that reflects the Supreme Court's interpretation of executive power, especially when the latter actually gives you more flexibility to accomplish your policy goals? So this is a one way to approach that is through the lens of the famous Dellinger memo that Walter that, wrote. That, that, indeed. 
and, and, and uh, we use that in class. I think both of us probably teach using that as a lens to raise that exact question. Yes. Um, this one certainly has all the hallmarks of a classic Dellinger memo. And I think at least some of the people involved here, I think were in OLC probably when Walter wrote that originally. So uh, yeah, very interesting indeed. I, I do uh, I do wonder, you know, it, it's an interesting question about would you take different litigating positions having said this? Seemingly not, right? You can't, or you probably can't. Um, I but also, I mean, it, it reflects, I mean, it reflects a fascinating tension, right, to me in not just your theory of presidential power, but in your theory of coordinacy among the branches, right? right. Because if you're, if you're a departmentalist, right, then departmentalism in this context should mean that Biden should not fire the social security administrator unless- I know, it's right, ironic, like, right? Like, right, so this, this, this on, on removal authority, on executive authority over firing officials, important yes. officials, yes. this is a very pro-executive, as you say, it's, it, it's very consistent with the unitary executive theory. That's sort of the underlying normative frame. Um, but it's coming to us through the, through the practical lens of a pretty clear demonstration of the power of the Dellinger memo perspective where there's, where you, where your good faith interpretation is the Supreme court has taken this position. You should conform to that. Yep. All right. Last thing I want to say about this before moving on is I will just say that for as interesting a position as it put some of our friends in um, the Republican politicians who decided to jump on this and say, how dare president Biden politicize the hiring and firing of executive branch appointees. I just want to say, be quiet. Like, I, I didn't what? see any of that stuff. I don't <laughs> deny that uh, it may have happened, but I also... Uh, Senator Grassley and Senator McConnell both had some choice things to say about President Biden abusing his executive power to politicize a position like the head of the Social Security Administration. Well, you know, my longstanding position is that there is nothing to be gained by uh, perusing the, the comments of political figures uh, of either side of the aisle in these ways. But, and my uh, longstanding position is that if your theory of executive power depends upon who the president is, it's not much of a theory. Uh, that's a that's a quotable line. There you go. All right. Did you, did um, you tweet that? That sounds like that sounds like a tweet. That was a tweet. Um, all right. Uh, um, two other quick things I want to talk about, and I know you want to talk a bit about Russia and ransomware too in the in the time remaining. Well, I'll just flag that what I a, a little bit on that, but I, I think actually it's kind of interesting to talk about the abstract problem the administration faces there, and to compare to the what I take to be in the abstract and nearly identical challenge they face in figuring out what to do with the mounting wave of of violent attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq. Mm-hmm. where in both cases you have an escalation and deterrence challenge that's got to be pretty maddening for the administration. Um, and I mean, you've been, you've been tweeting about this, and I, I would encourage, I mean, I, I can't imagine there are listeners who don't already follow you on Twitter, but dear listeners, oh, now's the time. It's quite exciting stuff. <laughs> Steve's <laughs> account is way more fun than mine. Uh, it's sort of way more active. I will say my account is, is, is way more... Um, Likely to cause negative repercussions to my career than yours is to yours. <laughs> you know, I don't. It, it, it's it's not a it's not a binary, right? Because uh, yeah, fair. I have no idea. I have no doubt that your approach uh, generates a lot more flack and pushback, but also generates much more enthusiastic support too. That's probably true. Um, um, although, although, speaking of Twitter, something really important happened on Twitter today. What was that? I was unblocked by Ken Paxton. <laughs> oh, was was this related to litigation? It, so it was. So initially, so Ken Paxton, the attorney general of our fair state, the indicted uh, attorney general of our fair state, which is part of how I got into trouble the first time, um, had blocked a number of his constituents on Twitter. 
Um, and some of them, not me, um, had sued him, claiming that um, the blocking violated the First Amendment, relying upon the Second Circuit's decision in now, the Second Circuit's now vacated decision in the Trump um, um, case. Um, and so at least at first, when Paxson agreed to dismiss the lawsuit, he just unblocked the plaintiffs. Um, but in a stipulation filed with the court today, um, he averred that he had unblocked everybody, um, which, you know, um, and, and I, I tested this and it was, I am indeed unblocked. Of course, it, that probably just means that we're muted. <laughs> Could be, but you can't make somebody read you. Um, nope. And so the underlying theory, of course, is that some political figures use what what account they've got on Twitter for official purposes. And if you're yes. using it as an official channel of communication, it's a public um, forum. It's a public forum. First time analysis kicks in and what a great segue for a whole different litigation that I'm sure some people uh-huh. are, paying, are paying close attention are thinking like, okay, so therefore the first amendment constrains what Twitter does. No, no that was what, what the government official who's using it as <laughs> yes. a public forum does. Indeed, someone, someone, tw- someone actually tweeted this to me um, in response to my <laughs> tweet about how I'm now unblocked by Ken Paxton. What should I? What? What should I? What kind of mischief should I get into? So someone tweeted, "It's strange that Twitter can block any politician they want, but a politician can't block anyone on Twitter." To which I wrote back, "It's almost like the First Amendment applies to government officials, but not non-governmental companies." Well, you're <sighs> right about that. Mind, mind blown. You're right about that. So it's almost like it. So, uh, former President Trump's lawsuit. Uh, I have lawsuits this, plural. But yeah. I think you have. Tell, tell me about these suits and do they turn on this? They turn on some kind of common carrier de facto, uh, de facto public forum theory. What, what what's going on here? No, that's the op-ed that everyone's citing. So the the lawsuits aren't that sophisticated. The lawsuits are class actions. Which, by the way, how is there anyone similarly situated to the president of the United States? Like that's so right off the bat, we have a Rule Twenty Three problem. I, I, I haven't seen it, but I have to assume they're saying like there's any number of people who have been uh, kicked off the platform, and so the class. Yes, but the, yes, but yes, platform. but the Supreme Court's recent jurisprudence on class actions requires the lead plaintiff to actually share. Like you know, the lead plaintiff has to be a representative member of the class, not just the most visible member of the class. Anyway, but I digress. We're never going to get to that. Class certification is not the that this lawsuit is dying on. Um, So Trump sued Facebook. He sued Twitter. He sued somebody else. There were three. Um, And he challenged all of their decisions to knock them off the platforms um, on First Amendment grounds. Um, And the the First Amendment theory in the lawsuits is that insofar as these companies were basically operating in collusion with Democrats, um, they're operating as quasi-governmental actors and therefore covered by the First Amendment. It's really wow. not I the just, sophisticated Eugene Vollett common carrier theory. I just assumed that surely the basis for this was the, to me, ultimately unpersuasive, but nonetheless interesting to discuss yeah. theory that, you know, like people argued in the 70s about or the 80s about malls, yeah. that, that de facto public uh, environments might become the town square in a certain sense. Um so that's not it. They're claiming actually, no, no, no. It's just that uh, there are government officials who are because they're do- they're acting at the behest of, dem- of of you know democratic public. Yeah. Now, mind you, right? Trump was blocked. Let's just be clear on Twitter. Well, he was the president, so it's his oh, government that was the allegedly. That there's there are many types of government officials with all sorts it's of the levels deep of state. Power. Yes. Well, so I mean, it's very tempting to say like you know it's a mistake for us to even talk about this because this doesn't sound like a serious legal exercise. It's, it's not a serious it's, legal exercise. It's another type of exercise. But 
it's it's good to draw attention to this question, especially with uh, you know the increasing attention being paid to big tech by interesting coalitions of both people on the right and left who are yes. all sharing a concern about um, the concentrated power of big tech. You know, does there is there ever some way in which the First Amendment uh, limits their ability to um, make content moderation decisions? Um, so I'm very I actually go myself. Did you see that Ted Cruz picked a fight with me on on Twitter about this? No, but I enjoyed the idea of you and you and Ted uh, having an exchange of ideas. Yeah, so I, I have now I have now I have now exchanged ideas with both of my senators on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's a it's, your, it's well, the public forum. Oh yes. Um, so so you know the short version is that I think the basic problem. So let me back up a second. For the non lawyers among you in our listening audience. There's something called the state action doctrine, um, and the state action doctrine, Bobby, I think you would agree with me, is it's not one of those like, well, the Supreme Court could overrule it tomorrow type of con law principles. Like the state action doctrine is a bedrock feature Congress, of modern constitutional law. First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, but and not just the saying, First Amendment, right? I mean, it's not like you know, no, none no, no, of no, the, but for yeah. present purposes, you know, the yeah. the idea that also private companies shall well, also right. protect free speech. It's not a free floating protection. No. Uh, as, as for example, you see with say the the prohibition on slavery and involuntary servitude. Everybody's bound by that. Well, but but there are only two, right? So the so you know one of the things I like one of the things that I think we both teach our one L's, right, is that the Constitution only directly constrains private conduct twice, right? Once is the Thirteenth Amendment, which bans slavery. One is the Eighteenth Amendment, which banned the sale, importation, blah 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 of alcohol. Yeah, that worked out. And really that, well. That did not end. That did not end well. That's right. And, and, and none of this, from an originalist perspective, should be remotely surprising to anyone, because of course the Constitution was the Constitution's rights-oriented elements were not crafted out of a concern for what private sector persons and entities were doing with one another. It was a concern about the power of government. Indeed, the Bill of Rights did not even apply to states right until the Fourteenth so, Amendment was ratified in 1868. Bingo. So anyway, that's the, the jumping off principle. So there's no argument that a private company, qua private company, can be a, uh, can be, can you know that can be regulated by the First Amendment. The ar- the, the best argument that's out there, and and Bobby, I'm I'm with you. I, I best is not to say good, right? Is that Facebook and Twitter and and the the sort of the biggest social media platforms out there? I think Google might have been the third lawsuit, um, right? Are um, Acting, it's almost like the company town theory of March yeah. versus Alabama. Right. It's de facto governance authority. It's de facto sovereignty right. within that particular state. And the and, and the problem is that analogy just doesn't work, right? Like in March versus Alabama, the company was providing basic social services. The company was providing the police protection, the fire yeah. department, they like literally the right did the government stuff. Right, like core governmental functions were exercised by and, the company, and all of it. All yes. of it. There was no yes. easy uh, right. escape from it. The, right. Yeah, the analogy Facebook, is, is Facebook does not exercise any core governmental functions. Twitter's not like yes, we get a lot of news. Yes, a lot of things happen, yeah. but there are these aren't no gov- these aren't government functions. No, like at most, right? They are like now loud we're going to traditional government functions test. From, oh gosh, from from what from Garcia yeah. from National League of Cities from versus National usury. League of usury. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but as Justice Blackman eventually decided. Not administrable, which is a really great argument here. If you have some theory about how, well, at a certain point, these social media companies are, they just cross the line. Oh, give me an administrable test to use. By the way, find a teenager who likes Facebook and uses it and thinks that's really central. 
is that, that. Like, at what point does it cease you know are, are you like regulating my space as if it's really super important but the, the other problem is it is so myopic right because like the theory what it would take to if you start applying the first amendment to facebook and twitter and these other companies well we're going to start applying other amendments to these companies too and I'm not sure that the people clamoring for you know Twitter and Facebook to be subject to the First Amendment um, are necessarily going to like the consequences of applying other constitutional protections to private businesses. Well, I, w- I will go further and say that even if there weren't that slippery slope issue, yeah. if you want to see, if you pick your, your political viewpoint and you're upset about what the social media companies are doing with content moderation because of what you perceive to be the impacts on your preferred speakers... Um, the power you want to grant to sue to interfere with that is this. This is going to be a card played by everybody. Never mind how completely a textual right. and a historical this approach would be. Do you really, as a normative matter, do you really want to unleash this approach to regulation? Right. I mean, these lawsuits. Let's just be clear. These lawsuits are not going to survive a motion to dismiss. Right. Um, right? They're they're not going to be taken seriously on appeal. They're not going to the Supreme Court. Like this is not. These are not the droids you're looking for. Nice. Um, right. Um, okay. Re- one more thing I really want to talk about, which was, did you see the story about um, South Dakota Governor Kristen uh, Noem sending private fifty privately funded National Guard troops to Texas? 50? Just 50. Just 50. 5-0. Huh. No, I, I was not aware. But uh, uh-huh. what, are, what are the 50 uh, South Dakotans going to do for us? They're going to help Greg Abbott poli- you know, build his wall and police the border because okay, the Biden so, administration won't. So in the abstract, this presents an, is- an issue of <laughs> one or two. anything wrong. Is there anything wrong with sending? Because doesn't that happen all the time that states send National Guardsmen to other states? So there are two. So I wrote a piece for MSNBC Daily um, about this. If people are interested, I encourage them to read it. Um, What the piece basically says is that I actually don't think this is illegal, um, but it sure seems problematic. And let me let me sort of walk walk through this quickly. So, um, Bobby, there are usually two legal mechanisms for, well, three. There are three legal mechanisms for state National Guard troops to be deployed to other states. Um, the first and the one that I think we're the most familiar with is just that they're federalized, right? The president right. says, hey, South Dakota National Guard, I need you. Right. Um, and now that you're federalized, you're I can send federal you. You're all the federal militia now right. anyway. So, yeah. Actually, federal army, right? Once they're, once well, they're federalized. You're on the Title 10 payroll now, so come on. That's right. That's exactly right. As you know, that's exactly what happens when they're federalized, right? And so once they're federalized, I can send you anywhere. And the Supreme Court in 1988 says, yes, that's true. Um, okay. Then there's the authority you and I have talked about previously that came up last summer, the Title 32 authority, where the federal government doesn't order South Dakota National Guard troops into another state. They request, right? So federal government says, hey, South Dakota National Guard, we have a mission. Um, would you like to help us? Yeah. And South so Dakota can say yes or no. The adjutant general or whoever it may be remains in command. The governor remains commander in chief of those forces, but DOD is picking up the tab. Right. And 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 directing the mission, which does create some awkward chain of command problems, but right. whatever. Um, and then there is a third one. And the third one is what's called EMAC. So EMAC is the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. Um, all 50 states and the District of Columbia are parties to EMAC. Congress has ratified EMAC. Um, and EMAC basically says when there's a disaster in one state, the state can request that other parties to EMAC send help, including their National Guards. And that's like the sort of sub-federal 
Like that's the, you know, state, state, just right. sort of they, sharing they, national. You don't have to involve Washington. Right. Louisiana and Texas can decide to help each other. And EMAC contemplates that. What's weird about this, so, so far so good, right? What's weird about this is that um, in this case, Greg Abbott, Governor Abbott, did in fact issue an EMAC request, right? And so you could argue that Governor Noem is just, you know, responding to the call, right? Is, is answering the EMAC request. The problem is the funding, right? Because what EMAC sets up is a regime where the requesting state pays, right, for the help, right? Where, you know, Texas wants the help, Texas pays for it. Um, there's no agreement, right, between South Dakota and Texas for South Dakota to pay Texas for it. And so it seems like what's happening is like Texas is on the hook for money that South Dakota isn't spending because the private donor is funding South Dakota. Now, that's not a legal problem, right? That's just like, yeah. that seems dumb. Um, the, the larger problem, and this is sort of the bottom line of my MSNBC piece, was there's something rather awkward about two features of this. One is the increasing specter of red state armies and blue state armies, right? Where, you know, the federalism angles are increasingly dividing along partisan lines. But two, I mean, what's, if we're okay with private, with, with, with governors sort of using privately funded national guard missions for whatever they think is important, like for their own purposes, um, that seems like an ominous road to go down. Like I could imagine, you know, Hey, I need a national guard for my birthday party. I mean, not like that silly, but you, you get my point, right? Like that, you know, that I don't think Congress should prohibit the practice, but I do think it would be in Congress's interest to think about the circumstances where it's appropriate for this kind of deployment to be to be pursued. So that's super interesting. So I'll say a few things. One, I think it's all totally legal, which is the upshot also of what you said. And totally cool. Um, I, no, no, I, just, that was the that's the that's the that's the old Trumpy line. Totally oh, legal, totally did, cool. Did he say that? Um, it like someone, such a casual thing. It's hard to pick someone, up. someone in reference said like it was totally the like someone someone said something about like how it was totally legal and totally anyway whatever. It sounds like a line from a. It, it sounds like a line from San Almost Fire. Like Rob Lowe would have said that like between yeah. playing saxophone or something. Awesome. Yeah. So I think it's totally legal. Um, I agree that the specific element of private funding and let's just let's just simplify the hypo and take out the interstate element. Right. The, I think the thing that's sensitive here would be just as sensitive if you had no cross state. You simply had um, a, a private donor privately funding state. Activity. This goes back. Yeah. This goes back to you know state activity we were talking about earlier. Um, I think the way to analyze that, I don't think of it first and foremost as a, as a national issue for Congress to wrestle with. Though it could be if you start getting lots of this, but first and foremost, I, I view this as a state constitutional separation of powers question that. I, I don't know enough about the Texas Constitution on this, but it raises interesting questions. If you had the federal version of this, how does this? So this, could, this couldn't happen. So this couldn't happen federally. So right. so one of the things I one of the things I say in the MSNBC piece is that the federal federal law has a statute, right, the Anti Deficiency Act, exactly. that would expressly preclude um, the federal government spending money that Congress hasn't appropriated. Um, right. But but there are a number of states, Bobby, that do not have anti-deficiency acts, and South Dakota apparently is one of them. Right, and then there's an interesting interstate, and it's again, it's a, it's a state issue for Texas. Yep. Is it problematic? You know, how does it relate if if we have different rules? I take it Texas maybe doesn't have an anti-deficiency act rule. 
I don't think it's the end of the world if we don't, but it could become so. I I don't I don't read too much into this incident. But but but, but this you're is right uh, that if it were to scale up, this could become something that really requires separation of powers. And at least and at least from a constitutional perspective, right? I mean, the National Guard, even when they're wearing their state hats, are still subject to federal regulation, um, right? Because at all times, right, the National Guard is for constitutional purposes part of part of the U.S. military, or at least part of the militia. And so it seems to me that Congress would be well within its constitutional authority, whether you or I might might disagree as whether it's good policy, to actually impose an anti-deficiency rule on out-of-state or even in-state National Guard deployments, right? To to sort of to 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 impose to impose on right to say, listen, states, if you're going to send your if if you're going to send the National Guard anywhere where you or another state are paying for it, right? The, the money, the appropriate money has to come from a state treasury. Um, I think Congress would have the, I, because it's the National Guard, Bobby, I think Congress would have the constitutional authority to do that. Um, certainly, I think that my first, my unstudied reaction is for cross-border deployment, probably so. For a purely uh, interstate uh, But it's not commerce. I, I mean, it's not... It's not I don't commerce. Think, it's, I don't think it would. I think it raises a serious constitutional question whether Congress has the power to forbid the state of Texas from accepting private donations to fund uh, an intra-Texas use of Texas military forces. But they're not Texas military forces for federal constitutional purposes. That's my point, right? And you know, Article One, what Article One, Section Eight, Clause Sixteen. Right, the Congress shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. So, right, Congress is allowed to prescribe rules for training even when they're in state wearing their state hats. Right, um, and if, if they follow that, you couldn't fund operational activity through the generosity of a philanthropic donor. I'll just put it this way. I think I think I think I would understand, especially given the deference that the Supreme Court has historically given to Congress when it comes to the scope of article of the of these clauses of the war powers clauses. I think if Congress wanted to impose uniform rules for funding of National Guard operations, it could. I think this some student listening to this should write a note on this. It would be great. It'd be be a really cool topic. And and if you're listening, you listener who's thinking like, you know what? Maybe I will. Thank us in your footnote. If you write us, if you write us and let us know about it, we will uh, we'll, we'll at least send an email to whoever you submit it for publication saying, hey, we thought this was a great idea. Publish but, footnote. And just one last point, which is this, this also just dovetails back to last summer and the Title 32 use of National Guard troops. And it seems to me that whether Congress has the authority and or thinks it's good policy to make to impose conditions on the funding of National Guard units, Congress really ought to at least like look into and have hearings and think about like i think it would behoove the house and senate armed services committees to really spend some time reflecting upon this growing trend of these kinds of uses of out of state national guard troops and just how comfortable we are with that especially in a universe bobby where it's increasingly right red state red state blue state blue state i just don't think that's healthy so i think that if they were going to go into this area looking back to what went on in Washington and you know, see prior episodes for all the issues. That's a very worthy topic. The lack of such attention is another example of some a phenomenon you and I have noted on the show. The somewhat surprising, though maybe that just shows we're naive, somewhat surprising reluctance, even of just the House, 
yeah. to turn back the clock and, and to address a lot of issues that I think a lot of people, while these issues were going on, thought, well, one day there will be you know other people in charge and there will be a lot of retrospective, hey, let's tighten the statutory frameworks. But and, 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 and I think and I think the armed services committees are so caught up in military justice reform as their big like social policy agenda right now that to me like i listen i'm not going to say that military justice reform isn't still a very important and serious topic um and indeed we've gotten some requests from listeners to talk a bit more about the ongoing contretemps over it but man i mean beyond there's a military beyond the military justice system and well right and and to that i mean i think hask and sask above all at least at least many of the members um, above all, concerned with future force structure, the yeah. growing question of just how hollowed out is the force, and just how ready are we yep. uh, for the possibility of, of possible uh, direct military conflict with a what we have you know, typically described as a near peer competitor who may not feel so near if we really mix it up. Um, sort of, let me segue real quick and just say a few words about the thing I mentioned earlier about deterrence and escalation. There's a there's a political article that that Jack Goldsmith. Uh, tweeted that I read this morning that was full of sort of commentary about the internal debates going on about how, if at all, to respond differently to the attacks on U.S. personnel in Iraq and, and what does it mean in terms of, so there's a lot of these attacks going on. Most of them don't make the news, but there are Americans being hurt. Um, there, I think two hurt on Wednesday in, in one of these attacks. And the question is, you know, do you, so just once a month, do we, do we do a, one-off strike in hopes that this time it'll deter them. What does it mean for the ongoing politics of AUMF reform? And all I really want to say is both in this setting and in the ransomware setting, where in one case you've got the specter of how to send the right message uh, to Iran. And in the other setting, you've got how do you send the right message to Russia to make them pull back from what they're engaging in. There's, it's all well and good to say we, we need to push back much harder but the truth is, the uh, available options often entail serious escalation risk and the possibility that further pressure from us in one domain might be met with yet another provocation in another domain. And I'm not saying, nor do I think, that that's a reason we should stand pat and get pushed around. I'm actually pretty hawkish in both those contexts about pushing back hard and not allowing the other side, at least initially, certainly, to have escalation dominance but in the abstract, it's the same problem. And my, my sympathies go out to everyone in the National Security Council and other settings in the administration who are trying to figure out, you know, yes, yeah, great. We, we need to push back harder. We need to, we need to impose real costs. Where's, where's that sweet spot that really makes a difference and that doesn't potentially unlock something worse? Well, I've said that, and I think we've been talking seriously for an hour now. Can I, can I do 30 more seconds? Please. One, one final bit of seriousness. The last bit of seriousness is we talked before about the ongoing litigation in uh, the United Kingdom. Oh, by the way, sorry, England. Um, uh, about oh, that, was, uh, that was a heartbreaker. Um, so we've been talking about the uh, the Assange, the potential Assange extradition, um, and there was an important development last week that I just didn't want to leave unremarked, um, which is that the uh, UK High Court, the UK Supreme Court has given the United States limited permission, so sort of permission to appeal part of the January lower court decision that had blocked Assange's extradition. So as you and I both, I think, predicted back in January, yeah. um, that decision was not the last word. 
No, definitely not. I'm, I hope they pursue that with vigor, but we'll see. I'm sure. I'm sure there are at least some within the administration who are like, "Oh, great." Uh, do you know what else? By the way, I predicted on this podcast not that long ago. As I recall, I predicted that the winner of the Suns Lakers first round series was not only going to represent the Western Conference in the NBA playoffs, but was likely to win the championship. Very interesting. I didn't remember that. That's looking not bad right now. Yeah, you know, Giannis sort of stepped up. Giannis, game, yeah. But uh, there's certainly a sense that Phoenix has the horses and that Chris Paul's time has come. Uh, Chris Paul was... Of course, uh, there's also the sense that Chris Paul is just, you know, one that we're one Chris Paul injury away from the whole series turning around, as oh, has if, happened if some of the other times. I'm coming after you, so... Um, Always greatly enjoyed his game when I taught at Wake Forest. Uh, mm. He was on the team there when he first came. I mean, he was a he was a well known kid. He was from the area, and he came by the law school one time during sort of an admitted students thing for the undergrads. We were put on a showcase, and I got to talk to him there. And so I, I've really enjoyed watching his career blossom over time. He did a cool thing when he was a high school kid. Um, he was I forget exactly how this went down, but he was in a position to break. The scoring record, mm. I think it was like 65 points, something like that. The internet has the true story. I'm just remembering the impressions. And he was at the line. All he had to do was sink a free throw to set the record. Uh, but he intentionally just threw the ball away because the point total he had reached, if I remember this right, I believe it was the age of his grandfather. There was a beloved grandfather that had a big part in his life. And he wanted to honor him by not breaking the record and just mm. staying with his age. I'm probably mangling the story, but some version of that went down. Any version of that story would be really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So good good for him. Um, you know, there are these players in, in all major sports who, and yes, we have shifted into frivolity. Um, the players in all major sports, the Carl Malone's of the world who, who are legendary figures, Hall of Famers, but just never get, a, never get over the hump to the championship. And so it looks like Chris Paul's, yeah. either Chris Paul or Giannis, are going to get one, and uh, Giannis has plenty more time on the clock, so I'm happy for Chris to get his. First. Yeah, Giannis, Giannis is is he's he's a youngin. Um, are you worried that Team USA got got uh, pushed around by Team Nigeria? No, I think it's exactly as Pop, as Pop said. I think it's exactly what they needed. A little wake up yeah. call. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what I did yesterday that I had not or yesterday today's what day is today? Uh, today's Monday. 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 Yes. So so you know what I did this weekend that I've not done in as long as I can remember. I played a video game. Oh yeah, what'd you play? I played MLB The Show 21. Oh, that's awesome. Was it fun? You know whose stuff is filthy on MLB The Show 21? Uh, Shohei Otani? Well, him too, but yeah. Jacob deGrom. Actually, Otani, <laughs> for some reason, Otani is not in MLB The Show 21. Oh, that's um, true. But, but deGrom is. So my, my, um, my, my, my Karen's, so back up a second. My sister-in-law's husband, Matt Myra, um, who people may know from, the Goldbergs or Star Trek, the next conversation or lots of other things that he does that he's famous for. Um, So Matt, Matt and Dory and their son, Henry are in town visiting us and Matt brought his PlayStation. Oh, God bless you, Matt. That's awesome. Right. So, so Karen, Karen has never seen me in baseball video game mode. Oh, I can't even imagine the concerns that this raised. So, so like, you know, Matt and I played, like we played straight through all the kids nap times on Saturday, I think it was. And like at two 30, Karen's like, are you going to get up and do anything? I'm like, it's the, it's the eighth inning. Like, oh, yeah, you I'm know, competing for a title here. Seriously. Um, yeah. By the way, the, in the finals, in the first game that Matt and I played, I, I want to get this right. I took a picture of it because I couldn't believe this happened. <laughs> um, I won on a walk-off three-run homer by Michael Conforto. Um, <laughs> Your dream come true. Well, you know, um, 
I, I couldn't I couldn't pick who was going to hit. I the thought wall you were going to say Altuve to beat the Yankees. Uh, no. Did you see um, that highlight? I did. I did. You know. We'll see if there was a buzzer involved. So here is the line they score. Stripped him down. I, I, know, I know. So I know. funny. All right. So here is the line score: eleven, ten, eight, six. So um, five. So I was five, three. Da, da, da. Um, so I was down five to four going to the bottom of the eighth. It was four, four going to the eighth. Matt scored once in the eighth to go up five, four. I scored three in the bottom of the eighth on a three run Homer by, I want to say, um, who hit that Homer by Alonzo. Um, so I'm up six to four going to the ninth. Then like the Mets yesterday, I blow it in the ninth, give up two in the ninth, right? So it's six, six going to extra innings. Um, then Matt scores two in the top of the 10th. Then I scored two in the bottom of the 10th, including a two-out, two-run homer by James McCann. Then Matt scored a run in the top of the 11th. I scored a run in the bottom of the 11th. Matt scored a run in the top of the 12th. Um, I scored two. Actually, sorry, it wasn't a walk-off three-run homer by Conforto. It was a walk-off two-run homer by Conforto. So I won 13 to 12 in 12 innings. My first ever game of MLB The Show 21. That is hilarious. I I just can't even imagine, like, people listening to this being like, wait, what am I listening to? That's right. The box score from Steve's dramatic uh, brother-in-law-ish victory. I love it. Brother-in-law-in-law. Yeah, the the BLL. That's pretty awesome. That's so fun. I'm glad you guys have had that bonding moment. Karen was very happy that the PlayStation left today. I I missed (laughs) the iteration of his Lindor in part of this Uh version of the Mets. Is Is he any good in the game? Bobby, one of the innovations since I last played video baseball is live rosters because they're all connected to the internet now. Oh yeah, right. I guess that does date my date my uh, video game knowledge quite a bit. Man, the technology these days, these kids. These kids, that's good. The the number of things, the number of buttons on the controller. It was it was it was like, what do I do? Let's just say I found Ready Player One familiar. Yes, and and in particular. Uh, the 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 big story of how it ends and the particular role of a certain game in it that was all very familiar to me. That's my vintage. All right, so uh, we've reached the the unofficial halfway point of the baseball season, Bobby. Um, how are you feeling about everything? Uh, you know, I guess we kind of covered this last time a little bit. I the, the the teams that are surprising. We've we've talked about that already. So I'm trying to think of of a different angle to bring to bear on it. Um, I'm really enjoying the Shohei Otani show. And yes, the, the, the Shohei. The Shohei Otani, exactly. Really fun to watch him and, and Vlad Guerrero Jr. sort of compete for, you know, just greatness. Yes. Um, I, I'm i a little concerned about the uh, this sort of situation with the pitchers and uh, the interventions MLB is engaging in. Now, I read a, a, a good article the other day, people increasingly, you know, begging, begging for some rule changes to address the shift, to to address the three true outcome focus, and to try to just get the ball in play more in ways that not just the ball's in play, but there's not some person who's already statistically figured out where it's coming down, and to restore the joy and unpredictability of small ball to the game. And I'm increasingly interested in that. I wonder if you're more of a purist, I think. Um, when I saw some of the data on the the, yes. the change, it's pretty compelling. Over five years, all the fun stuff other than the home runs, the fun's kind of getting sucked out of it. And you blend on on sort of defensive shifts? It's part of it. I think it's clearly part of it. Um, I think that the quality of the athleticism of the pitchers um, is certainly helping. And the, and the, the data-driven analysis of what the batters should try to do and the angles they should try to take all contributes to this. Um, 
So if you love home runs and strikeouts, hey, great. Most of the time you're pretty excited, but it just seems to have dealt a blow to some of the serendipity of the game at a time when it could use some new fans um, more so than it probably needs to cater to the, the long timers. Fair enough. Um, listen, I mentioned Dory, and I would be remiss in not noting that she has a new book um, oh. that came out uh, two weeks ago called Thanks for Waiting, The Joy and Weirdness of Being a Late Bloomer. Um, and it's a oh, bit of a, it's cool. sort of, it's like a funny memoir type book, which I've, I'm in the middle of and I'm thoroughly enjoying. Um, being a bit of a late bloomer, you know, young for the grade kind of guy myself, I, I like that general yeah. concept. So um, and well, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying, I was just, you know, so irked reading some Malcolm Gladwell book at one point, documenting Ugh. how the, uh, the the age, the serendipity of one's, or the, the coincidence of one's age relative to the thing, like youth hockey that you went into, and, and how if you just have the luck of drawing the age, you just right. get this huge... Outliers. Isn't, isn't that chapter one of Outliers about the hockey, about Canadian I, I, hockey players? the opening anecdote of, yeah. of Outliers. Yeah. yeah. Um, so good for Dory. Not, uh, uh, find Dory's book. Um, so, uh, do, speaking of books, so um, I, I will not read the Bomber Mafia because I have I have heard te- you know this is Malcolm Gladwell's new book right about the strategic bombing campaign during World War II and after. Um, but if you are looking for a less modern coming of age book and a more national security law driven book, while I'm recommending books written by family members, another brand new book um, is called X Troop about the secret Jewish commandos of World War II. By my second cousin Leah Garrett, um, nice. who is a who's a professor at Hunter College and who is fantastic, and her husband actually is an award-winning fiction author, uh, Adrian McKinty. Um, wow! So okay, I guess I'm the book is X Troop. X Troop. It's a uh, it, it's these it's about these um, British uh, these Ju- sort of Jewish German commandos who like ex- were exiled and like fled to Britain. Um, and then like join one of Britain's top special forces units and use their, you know, their knowledge of Germany and their fluency in German, um, to help on some of their, their, their more secret missions. I'll take the film rights to that one. Seriously. Like it's definitely coming to theaters soon. Um, that reminds me of something. So I've decided I'm rereading, I kind of can't believe I'm doing it. I'm rereading Wheel of Time, Robert Mm. Jordan's. Mostly Robert Jordan's series because of the, I guess, is it Amazon that's doing the, uh, this is, you know, Amazon's hoping this will be the next Game of Thrones. Um, I'm very worried it'll turn out to be not that, but what if it's great? And so time to refresh my recollection of all that good stuff. If you're a listener who enjoys or, or initially enjoyed Robert Jordan and like me, got just increasingly frustrated with those books over time until they stopped coming. Um, I'll be interested in your thoughts on whether the, TV series is going to be worth getting into. We got Picard season two on the way eventually. Be when great. is that coming? Hold on a second. Picard season two release date. The internet says March 4th, 2020. Wait, no, that's not true. That's when they told us there was going to be a season two. When's the yeah, actual a lot of, release a lot date? Of time slippage. Hello, March 4th. That's no people. Um, um, you, oh, the did. season is expected to premiere on Paramount Plus in 2022. Oof, long way off still. That's too far. Um, I know you haven't seen it yet, so I won't say too much about it, but I did see Black Widow last night mm-hmm. um, and uh, liked it. I would not say it's a, you know, it, it's not meant to be and isn't sort of a flagpole major intervention in the Marvel comic cinematic universe uh, type of film, but um, but it's good. And, and as I anticipated would be the case, David Harbour could not have been more fun. And uh, cool. 
he's he's uh, great in Stranger Things, but he may be even more fun in this. And with that, I guess we should let everyone go because it's been an hour and 15 minutes, Steve. I guess we should record this more than once every two and a half weeks, huh? I know, I know. It's hard. But some, I mean, it's summer, the summer, y'all. man. Summer. Like, yeah, summer, y'all. Summer. <laughs> that could be episode title. Oh, title. Oh, I, summer, I didn't mention this. Um, my kids and I, we watched In the Heights the other day. How was it? That's awesome. It's really good. Now, if you don't, if you don't like the distinctive musical style of Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, okay, you're gonna you're gonna find that it's got. You didn't like Moana either. Yeah, if you didn't like if you don't like Hamilton Moana, this this you you can tell who's the you know the source here. It's great. I thought it was really cool. There are some elements in common in those three soundtracks. There are. I enjoy them thoroughly. Um, all right. Well, listen, we should get out of here because I it's an, I'm I'm an hour later than you, so yeah. it's bedtime here in Richmond. All right. Uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vodic. We are at NSL Podcast. Hey, people, we need frivolity suggestions because, like, yeah. otherwise we're just going to keep talking about baseball every week. That's true. We we need more. We need to get back in, like you know, five best bands of this type, that sort of thing. Give us some give us some lists to grapple with. And who uh, would you most like to see play at Tanglewood? Hmm. That's a, I'm just throwing it out there. Anyway, um, since Tanglewood is about seven minutes from here, but okay. but I digress. All right. Um, otherwise, we will be back maybe next week, maybe not. Oh, hey, wait, see what one, happens. One final digression. Um, oh. One of the groups I play with, we've, we've played our church's farmer's market on Saturday morning a couple of times mm-hmm. now. Uh-huh. Um, the first time was so much fun. It was really great. People were paying attention. Then we did it this past weekend, and really not a lot of people paid attention. <laughs> it, was a, it was a painful exercise. Yeah, the novelty it, factor. Yeah, it built character. There you go. Um, all right, people. Well, listen, wherever you are, whether it's in Texas or Massachusetts or any point in between or, or, or elsewhere, stay safe out there. Adios.